Falcon, or to put it in Gaelic, hello, Falcha. So, welcome indeed to City Breaks Edinburgh, episode 16, actually the very last episode in this series, The Anthology. A little look at some of the novelists and poets and travel writers who've set pen to paper and written about the lovely city of Edinburgh. I'm Marion Jones, and I'm very much looking forward to sharing with you some of the bits and pieces I most enjoyed when doing the reading and research for the Edinburgh series. Let's kick off with a few short quotes. They're all from the 19th century, and they give different views of the city. Here's a very favourable one for a start, written in December 1820 by one Benjamin Robert Hayden. It reads slightly oddly because it's sort of in note form, staccato if you will, with lots of little dashes, but here goes. Came to Edinburgh by night, astonished at the city next morning. Wild dream of a great genius. Finest city in Europe, maybe in time in the world. The only city in the world where the Parthenon might be erected with something of its ancient splendour. So, referring then to the beautiful setting of the city of Edinburgh, but also to that 19th century idea, its cultural side, thinking of it as the Athens of the North, if you like, and actually building, yes, a replica of the Parthenon up on the hillside where everybody could see it. Thomas Carlyle, however, writing in a letter to his brother only a year later, in 1821, described Edinburgh thus. This accursed, stinking, reeky mass of stones and lime and dung. But if we turn to Wordsworth, it's back to the positive, because he described it in a few short words as stately Edinburgh, throned on crags. And Charlotte Bronte compared Edinburgh very favourably with London. It's like comparing prose with poetry, she said. Edinburgh, of course, being the poetry. The comparison continued. London, she wrote, is as a great, rumbling, rambling, heavy epic, whereas Edinburgh is a lyric, brief, bright, clear, and vital as a flash of lightning. You, she wrote to her friend in London, have nothing like Scott's monument, or if you had that, and all the glories of architecture assembled together, you have nothing like Arthur's seat, and above all, you have not the Scottish national character. And it is that grand character, after all, which gives the land its true charm, its true greatness. And moving on to slightly longer travel pieces, here's J.G. Lockhart writing about how astounded he was at the beauty of the city when he first approached it, coming across land on foot and pausing to enjoy the scene. We enjoyed the majestic gloom of this most picturesque of cities. A thick blue smoke hung low upon the houses and their outlines reposed behind on ridges of purple clouds. The smoke and the clouds and the murky air giving yet more extravagant bulk and altitude to those huge, strange dwellings, and increasing the power of contrast which met our view, when, a few paces more, brought us once again upon the new town, the airy bridge, the bright green vale below and beyond it, and skirting the line of the vale on either side, the rough crags of the castle rock, and the broad glare of Prince's Street, that most superb of terraces, all beaming in the open yellow light of the sun steeples and towers and cupolas scattered bright beneath our feet, and, as far as the eye could reach, the whole pomp and richness and distant commotion, the heart of the city. Such was my first view of Edinburgh. I descended into her streets in a sort of stupor of admiration. If you've been listening to the earlier episodes, you'll know already all about Edinburgh's spooky side, 
the many references to ghosts and cemeteries. And Robert Louis Stevenson wrote about one of the scariest graves of all, the mausoleum in Greyfriars Kirkyard, where bloody George Mackenzie is buried, the judge who had put to death so many of the Covenanters. And he goes on to recount a story well known in Edinburgh about a little boy who once hid, bravely, in the mausoleum because he was in trouble and was hiding from the police. Quote, Here in the last century, an old Harriet's hospital boy once harboured from the pursuit of the police. The hospital is next door to Greyfriars, a courtly building among lawns, where on Founder's Day you may see a multitude of children playing kiss in the ring and round the mulberry bush. Thus, when the fugitive had managed to conceal himself in the tomb, his old schoolmates had a hundred opportunities to bring him food, and there he lay in safety till a ship was found to smuggle him abroad. Stevenson goes on to explain how brave he thought this was. Quote, when a man's soul is certainly in hell, his body will scarce be quiet in a tomb, however costly. Some time or other the door must open, and the reprobate come forth in the abhorred garments of the grave. It was thought a high piece of prowess to knock at the Lord Advocate's mausoleum and challenge him to appear. Bloody Mackenzie, come out if you dare, sang the foolhardy urchins. But, as Stevenson goes on to recount, he never did. In the 1870s, two brothers, travellers, went together to Edinburgh and were much taken by the wines, though the little passages between the tenement buildings in the old town. They found them very frightening. The houses were tall. You couldn't see to the other end of the wind. They were gloomy and dark. Really, they were traps for the unwary. But they decided that they would be brave and go and explore them. Quote, we rose early and selected one of an antiquated appearance but we must confess to a feeling of some apprehension on entering it, as the houses on each side were of six to eight storeys high and so lofty that they appeared almost to touch each other at the top. To make matters worse for us, there were a number of poles projecting from the windows high above our track for use on washing days when clothes were hung upon them to dry. We had not gone very far when my brother drew attention to two women whose heads appeared through opposite windows in the upper stories, and who were talking to each other across the wind. On our approach, we heard one of them call to the other in a mischievous tone of voice, See, there's two more coming. We were rather nervous already, so we beat an ignominious retreat, not knowing what might be coming on our devoted heads if we proceeded further. And he goes on to explain that that was it for them, they left Edinburgh. We therefore returned to our hotel for the early breakfast that was waiting for us and left Edinburgh at 8.10am on our way towards Peebles. And before we turn to poetry, here are two last descriptions, both by Robert Louis Stevenson and rather different in tone. In the first one, he is indulging in that age-old pastime of complaining about the Scottish weather. And he does really go for it. Listen to this. Edinburgh pays cruelly for her high seat in one of the vilest climates under the heaven. She is liable to be beaten upon by all the winds that blow, to be drenched with rain, to be buried in cold sea fogs out of the east, and powdered with the snow as it comes flying southward from the highland hills. The weather is raw and boisterous in winter, shifty and ungenial in summer, and downright meteorological purgatory in the spring. The delicate die early, and I, as a survivor, among bleak winds and plumping rain, have been sometimes tempted to envy them their fate. 
And yet, and yet, he can't help but go on to explain that despite all of this, those who love Edinburgh, when they're far away from it, look back very fondly on it, despite all this. Happy the passengers who shake off the dust of Edinburgh and have heard for the last time the cry of the east wind among her chimney tops. And yet, the place establishes an interest in people's hearts. Go where they will, they find no city of the same distinction. Go where they will, they take a pride in their old home. I like to think there are people with Edinburgh roots, now abroad and far away, listening to that and nodding along. Stevenson loved Edinburgh all his life for all that he ended up living so far away from it. And one of the things he remembered most fondly was a place called Duddingston Loch, just outside the city, somewhere where he and lots of other Edinburgh citizens were wont to go when they wanted to do some skating. Here, in a letter to Francis Sitwell, he writes about a day, the 22nd of December in 1874, when he spent the morning working, writing four or five pages of his current work, very satisfactorily too, I fancy, he wrote, and then he went on to say how he spent the afternoon unwinding. Quote, I went to Duddingston and skated all afternoon. If you had seen the moon rising, a perfect sphere of smoky gold in the dark air above the trees, and the white loch thick with skaters, and the great hill snow-sprinkled overhead, it was a sight for a king. And the following day, so the 23rd of December, he was back lured again by the thrill of skating. Quote, I stayed on Duddingston today till after nightfall. The little booths that Huxter's set up round the edge were marked, each one by its little lamp. There were some fires too, and the light and the shadows of the people who stood round them to warm themselves made a strange pattern all round on the snow-covered ice. A few people with torches began to travel up and down the ice, a lit circle travelling along with them over the snow. A gigantic moon rose, meanwhile, over the trees, and the kirk on the promontory, among perturbed and vacillating clouds. The walk home was very solemn and strange. Once through a broken gorge, we had a glimpse of a little space of mackerel sky, moonlitten, on the other side of the hill, the broken ridges standing grey and spectral between, and the hilltop over all, snow-white and strangely magnified in size. So a reminder then that for all that Edinburgh's a city, it's one from which, just at walking distance, you can be outside in nature. Lochs, hills, scenery, outdoor pursuits. So, moving on now to some poetry, and I've picked out three which I really enjoyed, all of which capture something about the city of Edinburgh. The first one is just called To Edinburgh, and it's by Valerie Gillies. Stone above storms, you rear upon the ridge. We live on your back, its crag and tail, spires and tenements, stacked on your spine. The castle and the palace linked by one rope. A spatchcock town, the ribcage split open like a skelly, a kipper, a gutted haddy. We wander through your windy mazes. All our voices are flags on the high street. From the sky's edge to the grey firth, we are the city. You are within us. Each crooked close and wind is a busy cut on the crowded mile that takes us home. In Eden, Edinburgh, centred on the rock, our city with your seven hills and heavens. And then I found another poem called A Month on the Mile by Christine de Luca. It's actually 31 verses long because there's one verse for every day of the month. 
There are references to the sites and the monuments of the city, and to the history too, and the people who made it. But it's not just looking backwards, because modern Edinburgh is very much there too, including the tourist tat. And even in the first few verses, all of that is captured. So I'll start by reading the first two sections. The first one's called Castle Hill, that's three verses long, followed by Lawn Market, also three verses. Have a listen. On day one, explore Edinburgh Castle sitting proud. Find the modest crown of a far from quiet country, our national war memorial, our roll of honour. On day two, try Castle Hill. Look north beyond the fourth and, more obscurely, tilt your eye across a whole city, open a back door on the kirk, winkle books from a close. On day three, look south. Ah, a whimsy of fine whiskies. Boswell imbibed here, dined well, hobbled over cobbles. At the hub, you can queue for a different kind of bliss. On day four, cross the upper bow, look north, tweed and dashing tartan, a caricature of us in see you jimmy hats and gingerbread moustaches. Here, human geddes consort with the free kirk, and there, a touch of former glory, Gladstone's land, Macca's court, rub shoulders with Deacon Brodie. On day five, look south, kilts and cashmere, a nip or two, monarchs and nobles made this place their own, James the sixth threw banquets in Riddle's court, a jewel. And then, skipping forward to the last three verses, day twenty-nine, below Arthur's seat, there's law-making, our new parliament buildings, like upturned boats, hewn into its cannon-gate wall, poetry for the taking. Day thirty, cross to the palace of Holyrood House, where the ghost of poor bald Agnes walks through the chambers of Mary, Queen of Scots. Day thirty-one, up and down the Royal Mile, what a climb, but before you go, and until next time, will you take a cup of kindness yet, for old Lang Syne? If you've been an attentive listener to all fifteen previous episodes, I'm hoping you've got all those references. And then finally, as far as poetry goes anyway, something called Embra Buses by Stephanie Green. She's spelling Embra, E-M-B-R-A, phonetic spelling presumably for the way that the people of Edinburgh describe their own city. This is a wonderful poem, but I have a small problem with it in that it's written very much in an Edinburgh voice, and why not? So it should be. The trouble is, I'm not sure how well I'm going to be able to read it. Anyway, I'm going to have a go. If you know better than I do, then please do be forgiving. I'm doing my best. OK, here goes. Embra Buses. I like to sit at the front of the bus and keek through the hole at the driver's head. As he pulls on the wheel and gives the odd cuss, he disna ken I'm there. You can see the whole world for the top of a bus. Turbans and burkas, saris with cardies, kilts with Doc Martins, spiky-haired goths, hoodies and neds in Burberry caps, mournside ladies in sensible hats. Traffic wardens, grey as sharks, with fluorescent stripes, circle ready to strike. The blind man's dug sits obedient at the curb, his flesh flabby. I'd give him a good run. We stop start, shuggled aboot in our seats, by traffic cones, roadworks, jaywalkers and drunks. Crash go the brances as we lean into a corner. Hold tight, ting ting, we fall down the stairs. In contrast to the previous poem, that one's very much left the history behind and is all about now, today. Modern Edinburgh in all its variety. 
and even though you have the kilts and the Doc Martins and the turbans and burkas, it's quite nice to know that the Morningside ladies in sensible hats are still there too. So, moving on to fiction, there are so many novels set in Edinburgh, many of them by Scottish writers, of course, but certainly not all. Edinburgh does seem to have a hold on writers and authors. Those who have been there or studied there can't seem to resist including it in what they write. But let's start with one of the old stalwarts, Sir Walter Scott, no less, and a little extract from a novel called Guy Mannering, published in 1815, in which he is describing a little scene taking place in the graveyard at Greyfriars Kirk. It combines a few lines of description, which are very much definitely Greyfriars Churchyard, and a little incident involving some of the mourners there that day for one particular funeral. Quote, they finally arrived at the burial place of the Singleside family. This was a square enclosure in the Greyfriars churchyard, guarded on one side by a veteran angel without a nose and having only one wing, who had the merit of having maintained his post for a century. Here then, amid the deep black fat loam into which her ancestors were now resolved, they deposited the body of Mrs. Margaret Bertram and, like soldiers returning from a military funeral, the nearest relations who might be interested in the settlements of the lady urged the dog-cattle of the Hackney coaches to all the speed of which they were capable in order to put an end to further suspense on that interesting topic. Bringing things right up to date into the 21st century, we must, of course, have Sir Ian Rankin. I think I mentioned in a previous episode that he once said he saw each of his novels, which are set in Edinburgh, as being one more piece in the jigsaw that is modern Scotland. And that is certainly true of the one called The Naming of the Dead. It's made clear right from the very start because the book is dedicated, quote, to everyone who was in Edinburgh on the 2nd of July 2005. Almost as soon as the story begins, it becomes clear that this tale is set against the background of the G8 conference, which was held in Edinburgh in 2005. Events from Edinburgh in the first week of July in 2005 feature in the novel. The characters weave in and out of them. Some of the plot centres on the policing of the conference. Some of it centres on a murder, which appears to be totally separate. Right from the early chapters, the scene is set. Here, for example, is the beginning of chapter two. The barriers were going up. Down George the Fourth Bridge and all along Prince's Street, workmen were busy putting them in place. Road repairs and building projects had been put on hold, scaffolding removed so it couldn't be taken apart and used as missiles. Post boxes had been sealed shut and some shops boarded up. Financial institutions had been forewarned. Staff advised not to wear formal clothing. It would make them easy targets. For a Friday evening, the town was quiet. Police vans cruised the central streets, metal grills fixed to their windscreens. More vans were parked out of sight in unlit side roads. The cops on board wore riot gear and laughed among themselves, swapping stories from previous engagements. A few veterans had seen action during the last wave of miners' strikes. Then the action moves to the train station. The uniformed police working the train station wore bright yellow jackets. Here too, barriers were being erected. They were blocking exits, so there remained a single route in and out. Some officers carried cameras with which to record the faces of arrivals from the London trains. Special carriages had been laid on for the protesters, which made it easy to identify them. 
not that such skills were really needed. They sang songs, carried rucksacks, wore badges and t-shirts and wristbands. They carried flags. Intelligence reports said busloads had already left from the south of England. First estimates had stated 50,000. The latest guess was north of 100,000, which, added to the summer tourists, would swell Edinburgh's population nicely. Somewhere in the city, there was a rally signalling the start of G8 Alternatives, a week-long series of marches and meetings. More police would be there. If needed, some of these would be on horseback. Plenty of dog handlers too, including four on Waverley Station's concourse. The plan was simple. Visible strength. Let any potential troublemakers know what they'd be dealing with. Visors and truncheons and handcuffs, horses and dogs and patrol vans. Force of numbers. Tools of the trade. Tactics. You can just hear, can't you, that something's about to happen. That's very much modern-day Edinburgh, but the next paragraph makes a link to the past. Quote, Earlier in its history, Edinburgh was prone to invasion. Its inhabitants hid behind walls and gates, and when those were breached, retreated to the warren-like tunnels below the castle and the high street, leaving the city empty and the victory hollow. It was a talent the denizens continued to bring to the annual August festival. As the population swelled, the locals became less visible, blending into the background. You can definitely say that the theme of Edinburgh runs like a slogan on a stick of rock right through the novel, through Ian Rankin's novels in general, in fact. If you want to imagine yourself in Edinburgh, settle down with an Ian Rankin novel, job done. And for a completely different flavour, a novel by Maggie O'Farrell called The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox. It's a family history, really, centering on two sisters, Esme and Kitty, who were little girls in the Edinburgh of the 1930s. And here is a scene from those days when the two little girls are being taken out by their grandmother. As you'll hear, it's full of the Edinburgh attitudes, perhaps you could call it, of the 1930s, about not going out unless you're wearing a hat, and so on. The two little girls are newly arrived from abroad, from the colonies, as the grandmother says at the end of the extract, and so they notice all these things. And in this particular extract, they are being taken to an Edinburgh institution, Jenner's, the upmarket department store in Princess Street. The extract opens as they've just arrived at the tram stop, and Granny turns round to see how things are going. Quote, at the tram stop, she turns to look them over. She gives a gasp and clutches her throat, as if Esme had come out naked. Where is your hat, child? Esme's hands fly to her head, feel the spring of her hair. I, I don't know. She glances at Kitty for help, and notices with amazement that her sister is wearing a grey beret. Where did she get it from, and how did she know to wear it? Their grandmother lets out an immense sigh. She turns her eyes up to the sky and mutters to someone or something about trials and crosses to bear. They are taken to Jenner's of Princes Street. A man in a top hat holds the door open for them and inquires, Which department, madam? Mannequins waltz and twirl in the aisles and a shop girl accompanies them across the floor. Esme tips her face back and sees balcony upon balcony stacked on top of each other like the quoits on the ship. In the lift, Kitty feels for Esme's hand and squeezes it as the doors open. The paraphernalia is astounding. They are girls who have spent their lives in nothing more than a cotton dress, and here are liberty bodices, vests, stockings, socks, skirts, underskirts, kilts, ferile sweaters, 
blouses, hats, scarves, coats, gabardines, all seemingly intended to be worn at once. Esme picks up a woolen combinations and asks where they go in the baffling order of things. The shop girl looks at their grandmother, who shakes her head. They are from the colonies, she says. It's an intriguing novel about the different lives of the two sisters, all through the decades, how they ended up in very different places, and about some of the mysteries of their relationship, which were long buried in the past. It's a really good read. I do definitely recommend it. The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox is set largely in Edinburgh, whereas the next novel I've picked, One Day by David Nichols, really isn't. It starts there, on the graduation day of the two students, Emma and Dexter, who are going to be the main characters throughout the book, and it ends there, when Dexter looks back after several decades to the week of their graduation. But the bulk of the novel is set elsewhere. This last scene revolves around Arthur's seat, which Emma discovers, to her amazement, that Dexter has actually never climbed, even though he's been in Edinburgh for four years. Emma says in that case they really must go. Dexter's not sure, he hasn't got the proper shoes. Emma replies, it's not K2, it's just a big hill. I can't climb it in brogues. Oh, you'll be fine, it's not hard. Actually, I beg to differ, I think it is a bit of a climb. Anyway, off they go. Quote, All right then, let's do it, said Dexter. And fifteen minutes later, they were stepping outside into the hazy July morning, the Salisbury crags looming over them at the end of Rankela Street. We're really climbing up there? A child could do it, trust me. In the supermarket on Nicholson Street, they shopped for a picnic, both a little uncomfortable in the strangely domestic rite of sharing a shopping basket, both self-conscious about their choices. Were olives too fancy? Was it funny to take iron brew? Ostentatious to buy champagne? They loaded Emma's army surplus rucksack with supplies. Emma's jokey, Dexter's would be sophisticated, then doubled back towards Holyrood Park and began the ascent along the base of the escarpment. Dexter, it turns out, really isn't very fit. He tags along behind, smoking a cigarette, and notices that Emma, out in front, is making a much better job of things. You're very nimble. Like a mountain goat, me. I used to go hiking a lot at home when I was in my Cathy phase. Out on the wild and windy moors. Dead soulful I was. I cannot live without my life. I cannot live without my soul. On they go, Dexter struggles on, and notices that Emma's laughing at him. What's funny? Just I've never seen anyone smoke and hike at the same time. What else am I meant to be doing? Looking at the view. A view's a view's a view. Is that Shelley or Wordsworth? He sighed and stopped, his hands on his knees. OK, fine, I'll look at the view. Turning, he saw the council estates, the spires and crenellations of the old town, beneath the great grey hulk of the castle, then beyond that in the haze of the warm day, the Firth of Forth. Dexter had a general policy of not appearing impressed by anything, but it really was a magnificent view, the one he recognised from picture postcards. He wondered why he'd never seen it before. Very nice, he allowed himself, and they kept climbing towards the summit, wondering what would happen when they got there. And finally, here's that other Edinburgh stalwart, Alexander McCall Smith, and his novel, 44 Scotland Street, the first in the Scotland Street series, which I believe now runs to nine novels. Here's a little scene I enjoyed. Two of the characters have arranged a Conservative Party ball. It turns out there are only going to be six guests, and they're discussing how that is going to impact the dancing. We could have some reels, says one character, eightsons and the like. 
Yes, said Sasha. People love that. But there are only going to be six of us, Todd pointed out. How will we be able to do an eightsome if there are only six people there? And Ramsay Dunbarton is pretty frail these days. I can't imagine him doing an eightsome. The old boy would probably drop down stone dead. Then there'd only be five of us. There are other dances, said Sasha quickly. A gay Tories, for example. I mean a gay Gordon's. You only need two for that. And there's the dashing white sergeant. That needs three for each set, so there could be two sets. Todd thought for a moment. But don't you go in opposite directions with the dashing white sergeant and then meet up? If three of us went off in one direction and three in another, always assuming that Ramsay Dunbarton is up to it, then we would only meet once we've danced around the whole room. The band would have to adapt. They'd have to play on and on until we got all the way round the room and met up on the other side. Wouldn't that be a bit odd? Some of these bands are rather good, said Sasha. And later on, there's another character, Domenica, who gives us an insight into a different aspect of Edinburgh culture, namely being quite, quite sure that Edinburgh is much better than Glasgow. Domenica's driving along, admiring the beauty of Edinburgh, and thinking to herself that it could all be very different. Quote, If Edinburgh looked, for instance, well, one had to say it, like Glasgow, would it be inhabited by the people who currently lived there? That is, by people of taste. There was no other expression for it. It just had to be said. Or would it be inhabited by the sort of people who lived in Glasgow? The sort of people who... She stopped herself. No, this was not the sort of thought that one should allow oneself. Those sorts of attitudes of condescension towards Glasgow were decidedly dated. When she was younger, it had been perfectly acceptable for people to think that way about Glasgow, to turn up their metaphorical noses at it. But now it seemed that nobody thought like that any more. Edinburgh was different from Glasgow, it was true, but it was no longer considered helpful to remark on the differences to any great extent, even if, here and there, were to be heard faint echoes, very faint, of the old attitudes. But Domenico, it turns out, is very much an Edinburgh girl, and this strikes her anew on this particular morning. Quote, she rounded a corner on the high road, round the crumbling volcanic side of Arthur's seat, and saw the old town spread out beneath her, the dome of the old college with its torch-carrying golden boy, the domestic jumble of old town roofs, the spires of the various spiky kirks, such beauty, illuminated at that very moment by shafts of light from breaks in the cloud. This was beauty of the order encountered in Siena or Florence, beauty that caused a soaring of the spirit, a gasp of the soul. It was a privilege to be a citizen of such a place, thought Domenica. The beauty of the new town had been created by those who believed in the physical embodiment, in stone and glass and slate, of order, of reason, and this had found expression in architectural regularity. There's quite a lot more of this and it becomes more and more clear that Alexander McCall Smith is taking the mickey slightly, while at the same time reminding us all what it is about Edinburgh that's so attractive. So then, here we are coming to the end of the episode and indeed the end of the Edinburgh series. What quote to choose to finish off? I could go for Oscar Wilde in his usual pithy fashion, who said that he found Edinburgh, quote, quite lovely, bits of it. But that tells you more about Oscar Wilde than about Edinburgh, I think. And so I've chosen this little four-line poem, which seems to sum it up. It's called Farewell, Edinburgh. Farewell, Edinburgh where happy we have been. Farewell, Edinburgh, Caledonia's queen. Old Reeky, fare you well, and Reeky knew beside. 
you're like a chieftain grim and grey with a bonny bride. And indeed, it is farewell from Edinburgh. I hope you've enjoyed the series, if you've listened to all of it. If you haven't, you could consider going back and finding a few more episodes. I hope too that perhaps you'll look around what else there is in the City Breaks back catalogue. Lots of lovely cities like Seville and Toulouse, some big hitters, Paris and London. Much more besides. Do go and have a look if you're not familiar with it. I will be back, I hope, in two weeks' time with a brand new series. Still putting the finishing touches to that, so fingers crossed. But meanwhile, let's give the last word to Edinburgh and to Gallic culture by saying thank you and goodbye in that lovely language, which I have been murdering now for 16 episodes. Although I am quietly pleased that no one has written in to complain. Here we go then. Thanks and goodbye. Tapa leave, Agus, Martian leave. <laughs>